This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, a Black Lives Matter leader in L.A. confronts the LAPD outside her house. Melina Abdullah is a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. She's also a professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. And last week, she was on the front page of the L.A. paper, We asked her what happened. That's later in this hour. Also later in the hour, Virus Time TV with Ella Taylor. Today, Ella recommends The 24th. It's a new feature film about an all-black army regiment sent to Texas in 1917 and the violent confrontation with local racists that followed. It's a true story about the only racial insurrection in American history where more whites were killed than blacks. 16 whites died, including five policemen and four of the black soldiers. Over 100 black soldiers were court-martialed for mutiny. 13 were hanged immediately after the trial and six more later. That's coming up later in the hour. But first, maybe you heard the news. This week it's the Democratic National Convention meeting virtually, but still on TV every night for two hours of prime time. For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I should note that we're recording this on Wednesday, so we have not yet seen the Wednesday night events. I want to start with the main complaint of many of our friends Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter get big chunks of time to give speeches, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is given only 90 seconds in which she's seconding the nomination of Bernie Sanders for president. Everyone knows Biden's biggest problem with voters is with the young, who were enthusiastic about Bernie, but are definitely not enthusiastic about Biden. So what's with 90 seconds for young people's favorite political person, maybe aside from Bernie. Yes, well, uh, in, in fact, broadcasts, while they have included uh, a, a talk from Bernie and on Wednesday, a talk from Elizabeth Warren, have been really deficient on including more uh, Sanders and Warren supporters and have been particularly deficient in including young people. Now, I think there was uh, the thought that the speed dating version of the keynote address with <laughs> 17 young elected officials would, uh, would cover that, but it didn't. And, and in particular, none of those uh, elected officials were really identified or had supported uh, the Sanders campaign and, and really are not representative of the uh, young progressives who are clearly uh, the future and in some places the present of the Democratic Party. That has been the biggest, I think, omission of the convention uh, thus far. Uh, a, a sense of looking backward in speaker selection, not looking forward. And uh, at the same time, of course, the party has to look forward and acknowledge uh, the positions of of many of the uh, Sanders supporters, which to a degree Biden did in setting up his Sanders-Biden task forces, 
and uh, having them uh, come out with uh, relatively progressive positions on climate change and so on. But the convention is, in this one particular, I think, uh, rather tone deaf. And the other uh, big complaint of our friends is too many Republicans. John Kasich, Colin Powell, uh, Meg Whitman, of all people. And, of course, all of them suggest, some say it directly, Biden is their kind of guy. He's a moderate. He's not going to do anything to left wing. Uh, I look at it this way. I see two parallels here. This is what happens when uh, one political party makes a, a rather radical shift, as the Republicans have under Trump, and as the Republicans did under Barry Goldwater. Uh, when Goldwater ran against Lyndon Johnson in 1964, there were a slew of Republicans who jumped ship and backed, uh, and backed Lyndon Johnson, including Robert Anderson, who had been the Secretary of Treasury under uh, the previous Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and most of Wall Street actually jumped ship and backed Lyndon Johnson. That, however, really didn't particularly affect the direction of the Democratic Party, which after the November election in 1965 was the leftmost Democratic government uh, we had seen since 1935, the government that enacted the Voting Rights Act and Medicare and Medicaid and, uh, and, and the war on poverty. So I think this is, this is somewhat analogous to that. And let me make, let me make one more analogy uh, and, then, and then say what the shortcoming of, of all this is. If you believe, and as I believe and many on the left believe, that Trump is really sort of a neo-fascist, an authoritarian who threatens uh, democratic norms, then I think we need to embrace what the left's response was to real fascism in the 1930s, which was a united front, a popular front strategy. The American Communist Party found common cause not only with Franklin Roosevelt, but said that they were 20th century Americanism. They wanted to w welcome anyone in who opposed the rise of fascism. I think in, in a bizarre sense, the Biden campaign has been thrust into the position of being the anti-fascist popular front today. And so if Republicans okay. want to join that, fine. The problem is what we referred to earlier, that they are downplaying the left presence in that popular front. So I don't have trouble with Republicans speaking, who are really only speaking to Republicans. Uh, I have trouble with confining AOC to 90 seconds, and I have trouble with, uh, again, the underrepresentation of the young people who are almost uniformly left, uh, and, and that, that that's the constituency that the Democrats need to reach out to. And, and I think there's one other factor explaining the Republican presence uh, uh, among the speakers, and that is that Biden himself wants to emphasize that he is a bipartisan kind of a guy. I mean, we've often c complained or some have even ridiculed him for thinking there are Republicans he can work with if and when he becomes president. But here he's showing, look, these are Republicans who want to work with me and, you know, we're going to restore a bipartisan government in America on January 20th. That may be a pipe dream, but I think it is a very important part of Biden's political life and plans for next year? Well, it's part of what his political life has been. Uh, Biden is no dummy, and he knows 
that probably, you know, hardly any Republicans are going to cross the aisle on anything if he's elected to, to join anything that the Democrats support, maybe Lisa Murkowski from uh, uh, Alaska, and that's it. And in some ways, the most remarkable thing about the Republican endorsements was almost the posthumous endorsement from John McCain in a remarkable <laughs> video that showed uh, McCain and Biden uh, were, were buddies, which, which they actually were. So if that's not backward looking, I don't know what is. Uh, and, and again, a, li- a little more emphasis on uh, the future of where the Democrats are actually headed would be welcome. For me, just speaking personally as a TV viewer, I thought the best parts were when they got away from the uh, you know elected political officials with their practiced rhetoric and featured little bits of lots and lots of ordinary people. The roll call was the sort of climactic moment of this, and it had a lot of lot of stupid parts, and it had some really wonderful parts. I know you liked the roll call too. Oh, yeah, I, I, I love the roll call for the reasons you stated. And it included uh, some union workers who used uh, unusual language that, uh, you know, uh, you end up getting screwed by Donald Trump, said a guy in a IBEW uh, t-shirt, that sort of thing. My favorite moment actually came when they went to Rhode Island, where there were just these sort of two dumpy guys standing uh, by the seashore one of them holding a platter, which was kind of hard to identify. And the one who was speaking then said, you know, Rhode Island, sort of conventional convention rhetoric, you know, extolling the governor and the virtues of the state. And among the virtues of the state, he, he said calamari. And then it became clear that what that guy was holding was a platter of calamari with probably marinara sauce on the top. And it, it, you really couldn't make it out until it was identified. But I just thought, you know, any roll call that features fried calamari <laughs> works for me. Then they said, Rhode Island, the calamari comeback state. Cast yes, indeed. 34 uh, votes. It was truly, it was truly a glorious moment, I thought. That then, and, you know, sort of uh, emphasizing the, the theme of Tuesday night, which is that Joe Biden will restore normality. He's led a normal life. He's a regular guy. And how do you attest to being the party of the regular guy any more than holding a platter of fried calamari, I ask you. The other great thing about the roll call was the variety of things. I, my, my favorites were, I mean, this was in a row. Tennessee had a, you know, a peppy young blonde woman yeah. saying that Tennessee ratified the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote a um, hundred years ago. And that put the amendment over the top. So Tennessee is the one, so the state that got women the right to vote and she is going to vote for the first time and she's going to vote for a candidate who respects women. Right, and who, for all we know, was around in 1919. <laughs> and then, then after, after that cheerful thing, Texas is next in, in alphabetical order, and this is a broadcast from El Paso where the speaker recalls the recent mass killings by this racist maniac and, you know, very somber and says Biden will stand up against this sort of thing. And then Utah comes along, and Utah, a very nice woman says Utah's had vote by mail and Republicans love it and Democrats love it. It works great. And it helped increase turnout in the state of Utah. And, and then Wyoming, 
Wyoming appears, and Wyoming has the parents of Matthew Shepard, the gay guy who was beaten to death uh, outside of Laramie, and therefore Biden, because he understands their grief. I mean, this is an incredible panoply of diversity, I guess we call it, inclusion. And, you know, if the Democrats are really like this, it would be great to be part of this party. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it really showcased more than anything on a, on a convention floor could the American experience. And uh, that's, uh, that's not a, a, a bad thing with which to be associated when you're highlighting the humane part of that. One other arena of complaint by uh, at least some of our friends is that there hasn't been enough about what the Democrats will actually do when they get into power. Uh, there's a lot about how bad Trump is. Trump put children in cages. I think probably everybody in the world knows that Trump put children in cages by now. But we would like to have a positive case for Biden. And really, the person who did that the best, I thought, was Bernie. Yes, I, I thought Bernie did, too. I would, I would assume that uh, that's going to be a major chunk of Joe Biden's acceptance speech on, uh, on Thursday night, which is really, you know, far and away the main event of the convention. So I am not, you know, that alarmed yet. And of course, the Biden campaign has, over the last several months, uh, embraced a range of policies that sort of move halfway or a third of the way from where Biden was to where Bernie is. And the main contrast is, is that the Trump people haven't put out any platform, any policies, whatever. They simply are attacking the Democrats for being uh, socialists and, and, and worse. By uh, going to the uh, virtual format uh, of necessity, uh, there are things that uh, the Democrats can't do. Uh, while there was deliberate humor, as we've pointed out, in uh, a number of the roll call presentations, uh, you, you, you can't really work a crowd for humor uh, if you're a speaker from this kind of medium uh, as you could if you were on the podium of a convention. And certain one-liners from conventions past just uh, are, are now a thing of the past. I remember Ann Richards, the uh, governor of Texas, gave a great speech way back in 1988, attacking uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, the senior Bush, uh, saying, uh, poor George, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the kind of line that completely cracks up an audience. Now, when Bernie spoke on, uh, to this convention, he had a great one-liner uh, about uh, Trump, uh, narrow fiddle when Rome burned, Trump golfs. That would have brought the house down uh, yeah. at a, uh, yeah. and it, it was a good line no matter what, but um, it, it, it loses a certain resonance absent, absent a crowd. And uh, Bill Clinton had a, a, a good line, I thought. He said, if you're looking for a president who spends a lot of time watching TV and then zaps people on the internet, Trump's your man. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, Clinton was always a really good speechmaker party has passed him by in terms of political content, but that doesn't mean he can't make a speech. In fact, uh, I, I covered him uh, a lot uh, when he was running for president uh, in 1992. 
And I still think he was the most effective campaigner I have ever seen. I saw him in some uh, black churches where he was just astonishingly, uh, astonishingly resonant. What's become outmoded from uh, about Bill Clinton is his, his political substance, not his ability to, to speak. Well, meanwhile, Trump, of course, has been on the campaign trail to reply to the Democrats, and that means it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Uh, Monday afternoon, Trump went to Mankato, Mankato, Minnesota, where he gave a hour-long speech to a small group of people at the airport, Mankato Airport, not one of the really big ones. This was described by the New York Times as a rambling speech, which is really the only kind that Trump uh, gives. He accused Biden of wanting to raise taxes, weaken police departments, open borders, increase the cost of energy, and lock people in their homes because of the, the pandemic. Trump said, quote, he will kill the stock market. He will kill everything that we're talking about today. He'll also abolish immigration enforcement, abolish bail, abolish the suburbs, abolish effective policing, abolish American energy, and abolish the American way of life, close quote, Trump campaigning in Mankato. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, he's probably wrong. <laughs> I like abolish the suburbs. I mean, that, that you have to... Uh, that hurts. Uh, that, that yeah, hurt. yeah that, that, that's kind of hard to uh, conceptualize how that would, uh, how that would work. Uh, but, but, you know, this is, what, this is what you say in the absence of having a program of your own. Let's just say that, that Trump is uh, even exceeding even himself in the lack of nuance category. Well put. And, and they've all, they also dispatched Ivanka to Duluth. This uh, was on July 27th. She went there to visit a company called Duluth Pack. It's over uh, P-A-C-K, that kind of pack. Uh, they make backpacks for uh, wilderness visits to the Boundary Waters Canoe area of northern Minnesota. And this is a company that's been doing this for more than 100 years, and they make very good backpacks. And they have some kind of worker training program that the Trump administration has decided is part of its whatever Ivanka's initiative is. Uh, so Ivanka did an event in Duluth uh, at the store of Duluth Pack where she said Duluth Pack was, quote, an unbelievable example of American excellence in manufacturing. So eloquent. Uh, and, of course, outside, Duluth is a good democratic uh, town. Several dozen people, 50 or 100, were, were chanting, uh, they, supporting the Boundary Waters, supporting Black Lives Matter. The, the issue of the Boundary Waters is that Trump supports a proposed copper mine the runoff of which people are concerned is going to pollute the pristine canoe waters of the Boundary Waters wilderness. So people were protesting against the mine, the copper mine deal. They also protested how Trump had handled the, the pandemic. Uh, and now there's, of course, the inevitable boycott of Duluth Pack products, which is being led by native people, the Ojibwe-owned Hartberry is refusing to sell any more Duluth Pack products. 
And one footnote to all of this, the copper mine, approved by the Trump administration that many fear will pollute the boundary waters, is owned by a Chilean company, Copper, whose CEO also owned the house in Washington, D.C. that Ivanka and Jared bought. Small world. So they're sending Ivanka to Duluth. They're sending Trump to Mankato. I mean, it does mean they consider Minnesota to be, quote, in play, and it does seem to be more in play than Wisconsin this time around. So that's quite possible. Um, you know, if you're talking about uh, the backpack company having uh, a, a good worker training program, of course, most of the worker training programs that uh, uh, really are, are substantial and effective are those run by unions in, in the building trades and elsewhere. And so if you really want to bolster worker training in this country, changing the laws so that unions uh, can have uh, more people and more apprentices would be a very good move. Of course, that is not on the agenda, to put it mildly, of the Trump administration. Pulling back to look at the big picture here, the polls show Trump eight or nine points behind. Uh, Biden has had the longest string of high poll results in many decades of polling. If the election were held today, he would win overwhelmingly. But of course, it's only August. What, what can you tell us about the prospects from here on out? Well, I mean, Biden is certainly the favorite. Uh, there's no question about that. And the fact that there really isn't much that the Trump people uh, are doing except attacking Biden, which really hasn't worked all that well so far, does not augur well for Trump. That doesn't mean that something can come along and uh, upset uh, all this. Uh, I think uh, Trump was counting on the Postal Service so screwing up voting by mail that he might have a chance and or the election itself could be uh, cast into question, the election results. Uh, the Postal Service uh, leader uh, has been uh, more or less compelled by the fierce backlash, which was not simply democratic, to uh, the curtailment of services that he had uh, put in place, uh, that it's not clear uh, that uh, Trump can get away with curtailing a postal service. And, and let me say that the defending the postal service has now become a huge good issue for the Democrats. Not only is Trump incompetent in protecting us from COVID, he is actually malevolent in trying to destroy the Postal Service, which brings us old people our medicines. It brings us our social security checks, tens of millions of people. This, like the uh, administration's uh, dereliction of duty on COVID-19, eats into two Republican bases, uh, seniors, and now with the attack on the Postal Service, uh, rural America. Uh, in his desperation to win the election, Trump is, is, is really uh, actually helping Biden uh, by, by taking measures that uh, really alienate constituencies on which Republicans have counted and, and have to count, but particularly with seniors, uh, that they're clearly losing. Harold Meyerson, read him at at prospect.org, where he writes a daily post on the Democratic National Convention. And, and will on the Republican Convention as well. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. A leader of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles confronts the LAPD outside her house. Melina Abdullah is a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. She's also a professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State Los Angeles, and she appears frequently on the news. She's been on our podcast. We spoke with her about the protest movement in L.A. last week at an online event hosted by the American Prospect and Harold Meyerson. The day after she was on the front page of the papers in L.A., she explained what had happened. Yesterday, um, LAPD came to my house, surrounded my home. There were dozens of officers and cars. And my initial assumption was they had to be on my block for something else. And my friend was here, um, or had just arrived, and he alerted me, comrade alerted me that there were police. And I said, I argued with him. I was like, ah, oh, they're here for something else. And, you know, some time went by, I was on a phone call. And then I went to the window and looked out and two officers ran across the street and pointed assault rifles at me in the window. And so then we heard over the loudspeaker, everyone in my address needs to come out with their hands up. So I have three children, single mom of three kids and we were preparing actually to go to a press conference, which is why my comrade was coming to bring me to this press conference. And um, I was concerned for my children. So I put them in a room, you know, away from the windows and proceeded to come out with my hands up. But I decided before I came out that it was important that I live stream so that people could see what was happening to me. And I figured if I were gonna be shot by the police, I didn't want it to you know, be done in a way that nobody saw it. I wanted it documented. And I also wanted backup. So I called for backup on Instagram, gave out my address, which I you know, probably shouldn't have done. Um, well, I don't know if I shouldn't have done it because people did show up, you know, and I wound up coming outside to see that dozens of my neighbors were outside and were there to make sure I was safe. And um, two of my neighbors um, refused to allow me to walk towards the police without them. And one actually put his body in front of mine and um, uh, afterwards, you know, I, I thanked him, of course. He said, well, you weren't going to be the one to take the first bullet. Mm -hmm. So when we got down to where the police were, about two houses down, they said that someone had called and said that I was, me and my children were being held hostage on a million dollars ransom. That's why they were there. They didn't ask me my name. They didn't ask to see the children. They didn't ask me for ID. So I said we weren't being, they said, was I okay? I said, yes. But they didn't ask me any other details. So I don't believe the police story, which is in the news, that they were just responding to a call. I did ask one of the officers if he knew who I was, because 
I'm pretty um, well known by LAPD and they denied knowing who I was. Um, even though I would assume if you were coming to an address, it would say automatically who lives at that address, right? So it just sounds like a lot. I think I said on the video, this is a setup. I still feel like it was a setup. And I think it also proves as we're talking about um, the brutality of LAPD. I think that the tactics have evolved, but they still continue to be one of the most brutal police forces in the country. If you think about what kind of trauma that was for my three children and tra what kind of trauma it was for me, you know, to mm. have experienced that. Um, I think that they continue to engage in that same process of targeting um, organizers, of terrorizing Black folks who dare to stand up, um, which is what happened in Watts in 1965, which is why it wasn't just Mar Marquette Fry who was arrested, but his mother and his brother who came out to be, you know, to aid him. The community became targeted because they came to his defense. And finally, and then I'll be quiet after this, I think it also underscores what we say that for Black people, safety has never come through police. It comes through the building of community. It was my community who kept me safe from the police yesterday. And so, yeah. At the end of the live stream, uh, Molina turns the camera to herself and says, okay, everybody, you don't have to come to my house. Let's go to the press conference. Just totally cool and calm <laughs> after this nightmarish experience. So, Melina, congratulations on, uh, <laughs> on staying cool at the end of this. It's an incredible end to one of the scariest videos I've, I've seen in a long time. In our conversation, I contrasted the movements in the late 60s in L.A. with Black Lives Matter today. In the late 60s, the black radical organizations were bitterly divided. The Black Panthers and Ron Karenga's US organization were engaged in rivalries and feuds that culminated with two Panthers being shot and killed at UCLA by members of US. The white left of the late 60s was also bitterly divided, with different factions of SDS each expelling the other from the organization. Black Lives Matter, in contrast, has not had any of that kind of conflict or rivalry or feuding with other groups. They've had remarkable solidarity. I asked Melina, how did you do it? Well, seven years of work has been, has helped us refine it. We're working on it because we've been committed to it for the last seven years. I think centering... Um, it being a womanist movement. Black women at the center of the movement has taken a lot of ego out of it. I think that something that I don't always center, but others in the movement are better at it than I am, is the healing justice aspect of the movement. What I am committed to and what I um, do attempt to practice is building a movement that's restorative, not depleting. So I think a lot of the infighting comes from just being stressed out, you know? Yesterday was one of the most harrowing experiences of my life. And immediately, my team rolled up for me. Immediately, 
we still did the press conference. We still did the protest at Jackie Lacey's office. When we got to Jackie Lacey protest, one of our comrades, uh, Sikh brother, made sure that the kids, because my kids are involved in the movement too, had popsicles and chips and Gatorade to make them happy because they'd experienced such trauma. And after we finished protesting in front of Jackie Lacey's office, nine of our clergy members came and prayed on my front lawn for about an hour and a half. So I think understanding that the wellness of activists is important to keeping the movement well um, has also been a part of it. And I want to be clear, it's not perfect that there are times of conflict. Um, but we've, we've also learned that conflict doesn't mean blowing up the spot, right? Conflict means figuring out when to shut the door and allow ourselves to have that conflict. And we've learned a great deal from organizers who were active in the 60s. We have some of them who are part of Black Lives Matter now who teach us, for instance, um, the practice of criticism and self-criticism. So you can't point the finger without having three fingers pointed back at yourself, right? So what is your role in the conflict? So I think all of that has been really, really helpful in building a sustainable movement. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles, thanks to the American Prospect and Harold Meyerson for those clips. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Virus Time TV, Ella Taylor's ideas about what to watch this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. We're sweating away like the rest of you here in Santa Monica. Well, it's the week of the Democratic National Convention, but I am so glad that you're not going to suggest we watch all the movies about political conventions or politics. You're not going to recommend the best man, Gore Vidal's film stage play from the mid-60s where Henry Fonda is a principled politician who loses the nomination to a ruthless Kennedy type. You're not going to recommend Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the 1939 Frank Capra classic starring Jimmy Stewart about the newly appointed senator who fights against the corrupt political system. So thank you for not recommending uh, those films or any other films about politics and political conventions. What do you have for us instead? Well, I have for you um, two films about politics with a small P. Both of them are narrative features based on real life events. And uh, both of them very powerful in vastly differing ways. Uh, the first one is a, a, movie, a new movie called The 24, which is directed by um, Kevin Wilmot and... Uh, written by Wilmot with Trey Bayer, who also plays the lead in the movie. It's about a chapter in history that 
I knew nothing about because I didn't grow up here, but I suspect that that, that, that is shared by a lot of Americans because it really is a forgotten piece of history. You are quite right. I am a professional American historian, and I never knew about what is now called the Houston race riot of 1917. This is this is the first I've heard of it, and I'm embarrassed to say that because it's quite a big and important event. A big and important event because it was one of the biggest, um, if not the most, um, not the biggest murder trial in U.S. history, where 156 African-American soldiers um, went on trial for... Um, a very bloody riot in which um, several civilians, a couple of soldiers and several policemen were um, were killed. It was, uh, you know, the police had so badly persecuted these black soldiers that they eventually, the tensions boiled over. And uh, in the course of this riot, which is very graphically shown in, in the movie, in a way the wrong people were killed, uh, but it was an almost in an unavoidable situation because things had gotten so bad. The era, of course, is uh, when Jim Crow was the law of the land, uh, and it's set in near Houston, Texas, in an army camp, where the 24th U.S. Infantry Regiment, which was an all-black regiment, were uh, based in the hopes that they would be posted to France to fight in World War I. Instead, they are sent to um, to guard the construction of a military camp near Houston, uh, where the police and some a lot of cracker whites join together in in harassing, persecuting, uh, and in one case, the um, the sexual harassment of a young African American. Um, the lead is played by um, uh, Trey Bayer who's a very noble figure, uh, perhaps a little too saintly for words, um, as William Boston. He's based on a real character whose name was William Baltimore. <laughs> um, and he is the Sorbonne-educated son of abolitionists who is relying on the fact that if he proves himself to uh, whites in general and his uh, rather compassionate white officer who's played strangely enough by Thomas Hayden Church, <laughs> you know, who's usually playing these crazy guys, but he, he's a decent white officer who wants the best for uh, his regiment. And Boston believes that if he proves himself to whites, race, he will overcome racism. As you can imagine, he is disabused of that notion handily um, when all this violence starts. And uh, this is a you know, very straight ahead storytelling. Wilmot also uh, wrote the screenplay for Black Klansman. He's actually a history professor as well as a filmmaker. The dialogue uh, falls into the trap that many historical period pieces do, which is that every character is made to instruct us in the history of the period. There's a, a subtext of a, with a love story that feels a bit grafted on, although there's a lovely performance by Aja Naomi King as the young woman with whom um, Boston falls in love. Um, so it's a little declamatory, um, a little bit predictable, uh, but when it gets into the boil over of the tensions, it becomes very strong indeed. And I, I have to say that the strongest scenes in the movie 
uh, when uh, tension occurs among the black officers. They mistrust Boston because he's educated <laughs> to start with. Um, and there's a very fine performance by McKelty Williams, who plays a, a working class sergeant who really has it in for Boston for a, for a while at least. So those scenes are enormously, I mean, it really is quite nail-biting as the, the violence escalates and, and boils over. And uh, it, it is a movie that shows the old adage, which is nonetheless true for being old, that um, the more violent the repression, the, the more extreme the uprising is. And obviously that has tremendous consequences for the debate in our time about the current process of protests and, and uh, when they move into violence, they just can't take it anymore. And in that sense, it's a, an extremely powerful film. So I had to learn the, the actual history of the 1917 Houston race riot, or as it's also known, the Camp Logan mutiny. The 24th is the historic Buffalo Soldiers Regiment. It's famous uh, in American history. And they, um, they were provoked, let us say, by intense racism to uh, march into Houston and try to take revenge. In the end, the, the death toll is, uh, is quite astounding. 16 white locals were killed, including five policemen, four black soldiers died. It's the only racial, I don't know what do you want to call it, insurrection disturbance in American history where more whites were killed than blacks. And that partly explains, you know, the, the aftermath there. It was the largest court-martial in American history. Thirteen of the black soldiers were sentenced to death and hanged two weeks later. This provoked uh, a lot of uh, protest and condemnation that this was hasty, that their legal defense was completely inadequate. There was one lawyer for 118 of the defendants. Uh, and the army changed the Uniform Code of Military Justice because of their conclusion that justice had not been done in the death sentences. And then under the new system, six more, there were more uh, court martials. Six more people were sentenced to death and executed. Ten of the black soldiers also got death sentences that were commuted by President Woodrow Wilson. White historians like me didn't really know anything about this, really until the 100th anniversary in 2017, uh, three years ago, when veterans of the still existing 24th Regiment applied along with descendants of the original soldiers for pardons from President Obama and Obama did not grant the pardons. The latest news accompanying the release of the movie is that they're resubmitting their requests for pardons to Trump. Um, <laughs> you said it. You said it. So this really is, uh, you know, something that we, a history that we need to know about. And you're absolutely right. It's very much of, of, this, of this moment. And I, I guess we need to thank these filmmakers for, telling us part of the history that we have shamefully uh, uh, didn't know about. Yes, and I think that one of the, you know, the pluses of, of uh, Black Lives Matter and, and other groups of, of those kinds is that films like that are actually getting commercial releases now and that almost anybody could watch them. You don't have to pony up $25 to go see them because we're able to see them at home. And this, I believe, the 24th 
is playing a, a video on demand on many on, on many of the usual uh, platforms. And then you said there's a second film about real historical events that you yes. recommend to us. Well, this one is called Brexit, and uh, please don't go away. <laughs> <laughs> because I know that, that this may seem like old hat or ancient history to a bunch of people. It's one of the more entertaining and appalling um, movies I've seen, and Benedict Cumberbatch is in it. Um, he has a very large, mostly female fan club. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, he's a wonderful actor, but he's not my idea of a sex symbol. However, there is a small subculture of his fans who are known as the Cumberbitches. Uh, <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Yes, you're welcome. Um, and, uh, of course, he's marvellous. I've never seen him give a terrible performance, although not all the films have been good. Um, this was a, a, a telefilm. Um, and it's about the days leading up to the vote to leave um, the European uh, Union. Um, Cumberbatch plays um, Dominic Cummings, who for, for listeners who don't yet know, um, is an eminence grise who is really like a combination Steve Bannon and um, Stephen Miller for England as if that weren't bad enough, he's also a very brilliant guy. And the portrait is actually quite complex and often very amusing. We'll get to the appalling part soon. It's a beautifully written in that wry British way. It's often very funny, um, uh, written by James Graham uh, and directed by Toby Haynes. And um, Cumberbatch plays uh, Cummings, who, by the way, was in the news recently. I mean, he's the, the behind-the-scenes advisor to, um, to the Boris Johnson administration, if you want to call it that. We don't in England. <laughs> and he uh, is a sort of shifty-eyed, doer, charmless man with zero social skills, but he's absolutely brilliant in his sphere, which it won't surprise you to know, is tech. And this is the story how one man and his team sidelined the fuddy-duddy British MPs, and they are hilariously played in the movie um, by actors I mostly don't recognize. By the way, there is a, just a wonderful imitation of Boris Johnson in here by Richard Goulding that just made me roar, that just absolutely got all Johnson's tics and wearing a very strange blonde wig. And uh, using an algorithmic statistical analysis and focus groups, he sidelined the, the usual political process and identified three million voters spare voters who had been so neglected by the political process, they're usually working class people in backwaters, um, stirred up their fears and anxieties and wins the vote hands down for Brexit. Uh, the writing is absolutely marvelous. As you can imagine, this is a very dialogue heavy film because they're not gonna show the algorithms for very long. <laughs> Uh, it ushered in Boris Johnson's Tory government, which has been making a royal hash of just about everything. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that it's not a totally hatchet job. 
uh, a total hatchet job of Dominic Cummings, although he is really a, a nasty piece of work. This is a man who takes his inspiration not from political history or Winston Churchill, but from Socrates and Alexander the Great. Cambridge educated, working, uh, well, middle-class boy himself, immensely content, contemptuous of all those who don't agree with him. And yet he kind of believes in the algorithm the way other people believe in God. And the worst of it is that it works. Not only does it work, but he manages to outmaneuver a coalition of Cameron's AIDS, AIDS, who's a wonderful uh, performance from Rory Kinnear uh, as Cameron's aide, and, uh, and laborites who are trying to ham-fistedly use the same methods to, to uphold the political process and in particular uphold democracy. So it's both horrifying and hilarious to watch. And it shows, the horrifying part is it shows how democracy can be upended almost overnight by manipulating public, public opinion through social media. Those three million unused voters, it didn't even bother to go to laborites uh, to try and convince them, you know, uh, basically upended um, British democracy, many feel. Obviously, it has messages for our own democracy and how it's been undone. Been undone. Um, the movie is framed by uh, an inquiry into the disaster of the Leave you know, campaign winning uh, Brexit. It cannot be good for Britain in any way to leave the EU, and they're finding that out now when they're trying to wriggle their way into European Union funding for covid and the European Union is saying, uh-uh, sorry. <laughs> and at the end, um, he's, the inquiry, uh, the woman who's in charge of the inquiry says to him, are you done? And he sort of slumps and he says, I'm done. Well, of course, he wasn't done because he went on to engineer um, Boris's win a few months later uh, and has since been heavily criticised uh, Britain has a, a rule at the moment that you cannot travel to other counties of Britain if you test positive for COVID. He did that <laughs> with his family uh, to visit his parents who were, I think, in Durham. He comes from Durham in the north. Came in for very heavy criticism. And I'm sorry to say he was not fired, did not resign, um, but read out a statement that was clearly written by his lawyers. So more to come, but I, I, it's on HBO and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a movie that's been around since 2019, but I know so many people who haven't seen it, probably because of the title. It's just a must watch. So that's Brexit with Benedict Cumberbach on HBO. We also talked about the 24th. That's the feature film about the all-black army regiment sent to Texas in 1917 and the violent confrontation with racism that followed. That's playing on demand on many different platforms. Ella Taylor, once again, thank you. You're welcome, John. It was a pleasure. Finally, some closing words about the Democratic National Convention and the program tonight. Uh, the convention will end tonight with, of course, Joe Biden's speech, accepting the party's nomination. That will be at 7 o'clock California time. And we're very much hoping 
he doesn't just say that Trump has been bad and that Trump put children in cages, but that he'll lay out a positive, thorough agenda for what he will do when he is president. Before that, at six our time, we'll get a whole bunch of speeches from familiar people. I can't say I'm really looking forward to what this list of people have to say about why we should vote for Joe Biden, but the list includes, this is I guess in alphabetical order, Senator Cory Booker, the failed presidential candidate, Governor Gavin Newsom, Pete Buttigieg, the failed presidential candidate, remember him, the young mayor from South Bend, Indiana, who is gay, saw him in a lot of the debates, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta, that's uh, the city that where the cop shot and killed Rayshard Brooks, who had been sleeping in his car in line at a fast food place. Uh, the cop was fired, and now he's suing Atlanta. Um, and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms also has tested positive for COVID-19. Um, so she's had a busy, a busy season. Speakers include Senator Tammy Baldwin, the openly gay senator from Wisconsin. Of course, Wisconsin is the state that Trump narrowly won in 2016, where Biden is polling a lot better than Hillary Clinton did. But uh, the Democrats really have to win Wisconsin this time, and Tammy Baldwin knows that. Maybe she'll talk about how they're going to do it. Next on the list, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware. We've already seen him, not Mr. Excitement. He's the guy who holds Biden's old seat. And we'll also hear from Andrew Yang. Remember him, the failed candidate and tech billionaire who campaigned on universal basic income. He favored $1,000 a month for everybody. And it's been in the news just in the last couple of days. Yesterday, he criticized the convention for not giving more time to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. None of these speakers, I don't believe, will be as eloquent or as on target as the black woman elevator operator who nominated Biden on Tuesday night. Her name is Jacqueline Asby. Uh, apparently, her, her selfie of Biden in her elevator uh, went viral. Uh, here's her one-minute nominating speech. It's my favorite speech of the convention so far. I take powerful people up on my elevator all the time. When they get off, they go to their important meetings. Me, I just head back to the lobby. But in the short time I spent with Joe Biden, I could tell he really saw me, that he actually cared, that my life meant something to him. And I knew, even when he went into his important meeting, he'd take my story in there with him. That's because Joe Biden has room in his heart for more than just himself. We've been through a lot and we have tough days ahead, but nominating someone like that to be in the White House is a good place to start. That's why I nominate my friend, Joe Biden, as the next president of the United States.
Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.